This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. You know when you notice something for the first time and suddenly it's everywhere? My friend Julie Shapiro has a thing for personified teeth on dentist signs, where the cartoon tooth often has a smile and teeth of its own. I always notice these now. That and anthropomorphized pigs who are selling themselves as barbecue. That always gives me the creeps. And one day I noticed that sign stores, you know, the ones that print homemade banners and posters for you, always, without fail, have the ugliest collection of signs with horrible fonts in their front windows. Now I can't pass one on the street without taking a picture to document the ironic tragedy. Lots of things are like this for all of us on staff. We can get obsessed with tiny little design flourishes. And this is what happened to producer Avery Truffleman. It was just a shape. A basic little shape. It's rendered in concrete on a building by my house. It's patterned in an office doorway down the street. Here's what it looks like. Imagine a simple, stylized, four-leaf clover, flattened, with no stem, very symmetrical. I took a walk and I found this shape in ten different places. It was embroidered on bedding. It was plastered on wallpaper. It was patterned in a public garbage can. You'll see it anywhere you see great Gothic Revival building the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York, the Washington Cathedral. You will also see it in domestic architecture in the great, as they're called, cottages down in Newport, Rhode Island. Here in California, it's a hallmark of mission-style homes. You know, it's like a sponge. It just sucks up meaning however you want it to be used. This is Christy Anderson. My name is Christy Anderson. I'm an architectural historian, and I teach at the University of Toronto. And she's talking about the quatrefoil, this four-leaf clover-like shape. There's nothing that I can think of like the quatrefoil, which appears in so many different forms over such a long period of time. It could be endlessly reinterpreted and re-understood, I mean, in something which architectural and art historians sometimes refer to as iconographical drift. It's constantly sort of shifting depending on where it's used, who's using it, what purpose they're using it for. But no matter where it's used, it implies the same thing. Fanciness. And this fanciness symbol is very basic. To reiterate, the shape is like a four-leaf clover, would be in its simplest form. You can pronounce it the French way, if you would like. Quatre feuilles. Meaning four leaves. But the American pronunciation works too. It's hard to know for sure why the quatrefoil is the global fancy shape. There aren't that many resources on the subject. There's nothing on it. You know, nobody's really worked on it. But Christy Anderson is a good person to connect the dots. I rummaged around and I looked and I just started sort of thinking about it. Now, one of the questions is where does it come from? I mean, because things don't just usually appear out of nowhere. Christy Anderson says that just by looking at the shape, you can see it has roots in Islamic or Moorish architecture. That kind of organic shape that comes out of a geometrical form, almost all of them have some kind of Islamic origins, partly because of the great mathematicians who were working on early Islamic architecture. And the quatrefoil made its way to Europe via the Silk Road. Through small objects which could be transported with early carpets, velvets, and silks that were brought into Europe as luxury objects. Once the quatrefoil made its way to Europe, it was incorporated into tracery, which is the stone framework for big stained glass windows. 
And quatrefoil-shaped stone frames were considered beautiful because the quatrefoil was difficult to make. The fanciness of the shape is because it requires a certain amount of mathematical skill, but also craftsmanship. You know, they could have used much simpler forms. They could have used simple diamond forms. You're seeing something which really shouldn't be made out of stone. I mean, it's hard. It's a hard and difficult form to carve out of stone. So it only appeared in places that could afford them, like churches. And because it appeared in churches, this simple shape could take on Christian meaning. Just think of anything in the Christian tradition that comes in a set of four. The four evangelists. Or a variation on a cross. It's a Greek cross with equal arms on all sides. I'm sure people who use the quatrefoil now will not sit there and recount to you this long thing that I've recounted to you about Islam and metalwork and all of this. If you Google the image, you'll find a lot of modern interior designers talking about the trendiness of the quatrefoil. I was just amazed. I found like about seven interior designers who said, the quatrefoil is the shape and I'm using it on my wallpaper and all these things. And I thought, what do they think they're doing actually when they're doing this? My name is Brooke Taylor and I'm an interior designer at ArcSign Architecture. You work two desks away from me. I do. <laughs> we work inside ArcSign, an architecture firm in Oakland. Brooke is designing the interior of a big hotel in Palo Alto. I asked her about the quatrefoil when I saw a picture of a quatrefoil-shaped table on her desk. I believe what you saw was an end table that we're using where it's the barbed quatrefoil and um, it's basically the shape of the tabletop. Brooke says quatrefoil, which is also a correct pronunciation. And her design for the lobby has a lot of quatrefoils in it. Or quatrefoils. Here's a rug that we're using in the lobby that is literally overlapping catrafoils. And Brooke actually didn't do this intentionally. I didn't even realize until, well, basically just now that that catrafoil table is going to be on the overlapping catrafoil rug. And close by, there's also a chair with quatrafoil fabric. It just happened that way. The quatrafoil just has an appeal. It is, at heart, a very simple shape. But um, somehow there's just a formality to it. You can tell that there's a history behind it, even if you don't know what it is. You can tell that it's out of history somewhere. And so to then take that and reinterpret it into a modern form, I think has appeal for people. But the way we see the quatrefoil in modern interior design is not referencing Gothic tracery directly. Surprise, surprise. The quatrefoil shape first came back in style in a big way in the 19th century during the Gothic Revival period. This was when the Industrial Revolution was in full swing. People were seeking style inspiration from the pre-industrial era and kind of hearkening back to a simpler time. The Gothic Revival movement was also around the time of the Egyptomania craze, when new archaeological digs were popping up all around the world. It was all very new. It was like, oh my god, they just discovered these tombs in Egypt and uncovering Roman ruins and Greek ruins, bringing all of those influences in and also reviving some interest in Gothic architecture. Designers were looking to the past and around the globe for inspiration. They traveled, photographing, sketching, digging into archives and collecting patterns, motifs, and shapes that they found inspiring. And they would publish these findings in so-called pattern books. In the second half of the 19th century, historian Christy Anderson again, there was a kind of flourishing of architects and designers who created pattern books of designs which could be used by 
architects, masons, craftsmen, really in any field. So it didn't matter whether you were doing painting or tile work. These were encyclopedias of design, of which the most famous one was The Grammar of Ornament, which was published by a man named Owen Jones. Owen Jones was an architect who took a special interest in ornament and pattern. I mean, if you've never seen Owen Jones's books, they are so beautiful. It's a big book. His book, The Grammar of Ornament, has pages and pages of pure pattern. And then, you know, some text intervening, but for the most part, it's just colorful squares of pattern. From buildings all over the world. I mean, you've got India, you've got Chinese, you have Moorish, Celtic, Turkish. Like an Epcot tour of wallpapers. Owen Jones's book sort of transformed the whole way in which design was created because now you had these patterns which were completely disconnected from their original function. They were just forms printed on the page. Many of the forms across many of the cultures Jones documented were quatrefoils. It was particularly Owen Jones's work, The Grammar of Ornament, where the quatrefoil had a very important place, um, was part of a number of different pages on ornament was repeated over and over again and certainly sort of spurred on the interests in this form in the later 19th and early 20th century. And designers still use these pattern books for inspiration. Number 18 on this page, I mean, that looks like something that somebody would have done in the 60s and it's kind of modern. Yeah, but no, Renaissance. And it would seem that Jones succeeded in his mission for his book. He hoped the grammar of ornament would provide context and background for these patterns and that they would be a source of inspiration, which anyone and everyone could use. But today, part of the quatrefoil's fancy symbolism comes from the modern luxury brands that have associated with it. Many of which are clamoring to own it. Louis Vuitton had a lawsuit over use of the quatrefoil. Luxury jeweler David Yerman trademarked the word quatrefoil. Another jewelry company, Van Cleef & Arpels, is fiercely litigious over its claim to the shape. There is a power about this simple form, which is everywhere, and yet it has no steady associations with any specific country or movement. And this is what separates it from other ornamental forms like the fleur-de-lis or even the swastika. I mean, Middle Ages. Seriously, there are patterns from the Middle Ages in here. And you see the barbed catrefoil. How can you copyright that? (laughs) The best thing about the grammar of ornament are the pages and pages of beautiful pattern. But Jones's brief introduction is also really interesting. In it, Jones lists 37 propositions for the creation of good decorative design. General principles in the arrangement of form and color in architecture and the decorative arts, which are advocated throughout this work. I imagine most people just skip right over these and get to the pretty stuff. It's an interesting mix of statements in these propositions. Proposition four is almost philosophy, you know? Absolutely. True beauty results from that repose which the mind feels when the eye, the intellect, and the affections are satisfied from the absence of any want. That is extremely (laughs) philosophical. And then you have something as basic as Proposition 26, colors on white grounds appear darker, on black grounds lighter. But I think Proposition Proposition 13 unlocks the logic behind the inherent attractiveness of the quatrefoil. Flowers or other natural objects should not be used as ornaments, but conventional representations founded upon them sufficiently suggestive to convey the intended image to the mind without destroying the unity of the object they are employed to decorate. Or to translate. It's basically like, don't just put a bird on it. (laughs) 
<laughs> Flowery designs don't necessarily look good. According to Jones, the best kinds of designs imply nature, while keeping with Proposition, Proposition 8, 8. All ornaments should be based upon a geometrical construction. The quatrefoil is both geometrical and natural, but without being too flowery. And this just might be what attracts designers to it over and over again and keeps it forever floating around us in iconographical drift. My boys were born in a quatrefoil-shaped building in Chicago, the Princess Women's Hospital at Northwestern. The whole building is in the shape of a quatrefoil as seen from above. It was cool looking, but according to the people at Northwestern, it was a pretty impractical shape for a modern research hospital. So it's been demolished. A lot of people, including myself, were sad to see it go. A Save Prentice group tried to get the building landmark status. Petitions were circulated, but the effort ultimately failed. But I think it's safe to say that no one would have cared at all if the building was not shaped like a quatrefoil. Invisible was produced this week by Avery Truffleman with Katie Mingle, Sam Greenspan, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 Local Public Radio KALW in San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, a brilliant architecture firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible comes from our Booksmart and Street Smart listeners and Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own website or portfolio. I ask you to send me your Squarespace-created sites in this week. I want to direct your attention to Godar Furniture. That's G-O-D-A-R Furniture.com, home of the Sutro Tower coat rack. Oh, I want one so bad. (laughs) Check it out. You're going to want one too. If you want to make your own Squarespace site and online furniture store, sign up for a free trial right now at Squarespace.com. And if you decide to purchase, use the offer code INVISIBLE and save 10%. That's Squarespace.com and use the offer code INVISIBLE. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Long-standing podcast enabling support is also provided by Tiny Letter, email for people with something to say. My boy Maslow always has something to say. This week, we're making homemade lightsabers. Here's how you make a blue lightsaber. Take a pool noodle and cut it in half. Then put silver and black tape on the end to make a handle. And if you want, you could even put a red or blue button on. You could even put both. And that's how you make a lightsaber. We went to a birthday party in the park this weekend with 40 kids beating each other in the head with those. No injuries. Tinyletter.com. It's free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter. From the great people behind MailChimp. We are a founding member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collective of the most interesting, cutting-edge, audio-rich radio programs in the world. This week on Radio Diaries. As a teenager, Frankie Luchuk recorded an audio diary about his family in rural Alabama. 16 years later he recorded a follow-up story for the Teenage Diaries Revisited series. A lot happens in 16 years. Well, I went from being on the front page of football, representing my little bitty school, to being on the front page of a thief and a meth head. Hear Frankie's story on the Radio Diaries podcast coming out on March 19th. Subscribe to it and all of our fellow Radiotopians at radiotopia.fm. 
Radiotopia from PRX is made possible with support from the Knight Foundation and our launch sponsor, MailChimp, who celebrate creativity, chaos, and teamwork, of which we have in spades in Radiotopia. If you are interested in supporting this and other podcasts like it, email sponsor at prx.org. You can find the show and like the show on Facebook. Oh, if you follow us on Facebook, you know that office hours have returned. Friday, March 21st from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Radio Bar in downtown Oakland. You can find all the details at facebook.com slash 99% invisible. I also tweeted about it at Roman Mars. Sam tweets at Sam listens. Avery tweets at Truffleman. Katie Mingle tweets at Katie Mingle, although I told her she doesn't have to. We have a really great Tumblr at 99percentinvisible.tumblr.com. But right now, we have all kinds of pictures of quatrefoils in their natural habitat at 99pi.org. Radio Tokyo from Pete.